Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media. So be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now enjoy the message. We're going to be looking at these characters and their lives and how through their faith they were able to connect with God and how they set as a beautiful example to you and I today to know that the way whereby you and I connect with God is by, by faith. We've said that grace, the unmerited favor of God, is God reaching down toward us. And faith is our response to that. Faith is when we reach back up toward Him. And in Hebrews 11, as we talked about, it opens with the idea that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And by faith, we understand how the world was made. And so, so on he talks about this power, this element of faith. Faith is substance, something beneath you upon which you stand. Faith is substance. Faith is evidence. It is evident by the lives of people around us, the experiences that we hear, the things that we've gone through in our life, the times that we have seen God work things out for us in ways we did not think were possible. Everyone has a story. So faith has evidence. It's all around us. And by faith, we understand. Understanding is the truth under which you stand. And you have understanding because of your faith, your experience with God. And then he said in Hebrews eleven six that you come to God by faith, by believing who he is. And the second element of that is by believing he is capable of doing what he says he can do. And so our Bible is replete, it's filled with story after story, example after example of God's promises to us and how that he has said, if you will act by faith on what I have said, you can see the reality of my power within your own life. In fact, in Hebrews 13, when you look at verses five and six, he says, for God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, verse six, so that we may say, the Lord is my helper of whom will I be afraid. And I've said you connect those two verses together, the first part of those verses, and you understand how faith works. Faith is he has said so that we may say. Faith is me saying what God has said. In fact, in Romans uh, 10, verse 17, the Bible says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So when I base my faith upon God's word, upon what God has said, it's not blind faith. It's not just hoping against hope. I have an object, I have a focus, I have a focal point for my faith, and it is God's word. Because he's not a liar, his word will hold true. God will do the thing he has said that he will do. And so we're going to be exploring some of those characters in the hall of faith and how their faith impacted their life and their world. And conversely, we're gonna to try to draw application and analogy from it to take away something that will help us in our lives today. This morning, we're gonna talk about Noah. And I thought about how Noah had a, pardon the pun here, but an unsinkable faith. Noah had placed his faith and his trust in God. And God did not fail him. Now, what's interesting as you kind of set the table for a study of Noah is when you read Genesis 6 and you see the condition of man without God. Now, when God created all things, God walked with man, he talked with him, Adam and Eve had the relationship with God that didn't require faith because they saw him face to face. 
And so they had a unique experience with God. But when you get to Genesis 3, sin enters the picture, they're driven from the garden, and from that point in time, man now, because of sin, is separated from God. In the garden, God placed the tree, and God gave man a choice. The choice was to choose to obey or choose to disobey. Some people say, well, if the tree hadn't been in the garden, then man would not have sinned, and then therefore there would be no need for a savior, and our lives would have a different trajectory, so isn't God somehow responsible for the sins that are in the world? And I say, no, that's a misunderstanding of why the tree was there. The tree was in the garden so that man could choose to love God and not love him because he has no other choice. If you're not, if you're not free, to not love someone, then you're not free to truly love someone. God has never sought to control people by brain control, mind control, by force, or by coercion. Instead, he has sought to control man. He's sought to draw us through our heart, through our desire to know him, through a connection with him, through the power of his Holy Spirit. So the tree was placed in the garden to give them a choice, and you know the story. A man chose to sin against God. And of course, again, the sovereignty of God is there because God knew that would happen, the inevitable thing would occur. In fact, when you understand what he wrote in Revelation 13, eight, the Bible says when Jesus came into the world, he came into the world as God's sacrifice, and then you read this expression, Revelation 13, eight, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now understand that meaning that somewhere in the council halls of eternity, before God ever stepped from nowhere to stand on nothing and speak everything into existence, they sat down, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and talked about this idea that if we create a place called Earth and we place human beings made in our likeness there on that Earth and we give them the choice to sin, they will sin. <laughs> and so they're going to need a savior. I'm giving you the Cliff Notes version of the story here. And so Jesus stepped forward and said, I will be the one to bridge the gap. I'll be your sacrifice that will take away the sins of the world. And so Revelation 13, eight, he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That's why I would caution you to ever view Jesus as a victim. Uh, the cross did not catch him by surprise. When he prays in the garden, if it possible, let this cup pass from me, he's not trying to get out of going to the cross. The thing he dreaded more than anything in the world was becoming the object of his father's scorn because he knew that a holy and righteous God could not look upon sin. And when Jesus went to the cross, the sins of the world would be rolled upon him. And at that moment, God would have to turn his back on his son. And Jesus would cry from the cross, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, he so completely became sin for us that the father could not look upon sin and had to turn his back on his son in the moment. And yet Jesus, he dreaded that moment more than anything. That's what he prayed in the garden. If it's possible to go to the cross without becoming the, the object of your scorn, that was what I would desire to do. And then he goes on and closes the prayer, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so you began to understand the wrath of God, how it is connected with the mercy of God how God is righteous and holy who cannot look upon sin, but because he is righteous and holy, he also has judgment upon sin. If he does not judge sin, he can no longer be righteous and he can no longer be just. A just God demands that he judges sin. And that's really the story of Noah's generation. Because by the time you get to Genesis chapter six, mankind has been on the earth for about 1,500 years. And a lot of scholars believe 
that there were probably close to 50 million people on the planet. Now, we live in a different day. That's not a lot of people you know, compared to where we are today. But in that day, it was an enormous amount of people. And over 1,500 years, what was interesting about it is those people had as a majority, nine out of 10, if not more than that, according to the scripture, had turned their backs on God. They had walked away from God. And they had desired to not have any relationship with God. They didn't want their children to know about God. And the Bible says the world was continuing to, come, to become more and more evil and more and more wicked. Look in Genesis 6. I'll just lift a portion of that. And again, I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter this evening. In Genesis 6, he said, The Lord saw the wickedness of man. It was great in the earth. And note now, every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. God said, I'm looking down from heaven to find some righteous person on the earth, and I can't find one. They're, the intent, not just what they're doing, but their heart, the evil that is in their heart is bent toward wickedness continually. Now understand, this is the man, these are men and women who are choosing to have no relationship with God. These are men and women who are choosing to walk away from God. They're exercising their free will and their choice to not have any relationship with God. And the result of that is they're going deeper and deeper into the darkness and the depravity of their own soul. And God is seeing that. He's seeing what is happening. They're evil continually. Verse six, the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. Now, it's an anthropomorphic term to say God was sorrowful or grieving. He's trying to use an expression that we can relate to. He's trying to help us understand how this moved the heart of God to know that man had ultimately done what he knew he would do, and that is rejecting him. And in rejecting him ultimately is to bring upon the judgment of God upon their sin. And so the Lord says as a result of this, look at verse seven, I will destroy man that I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things, the birds of the, of the air, for I am sorry that I've made them. So God is about to completely reset. He, he's gonna destroy every living thing on the earth. Now he's sovereign, he created it. These are, his, these are his people. He can do with them as he will. He can do with them as he chooses to do. He's God, I'm not. And so his decision was, look, they are walking away from me. They're doing evil. They're doing terrible things. In fact, down in verse 13, he talks about they're becoming violent, violent. It's interesting, the Hebrew word for violence is Hamas. He said they're becoming increasingly violent toward one another. And in fact, if you read the first part of chapter six, he talks about them willingly giving themselves over to demonic possession. In other words, they're not only just rejecting God, but they're embracing the enemy. So it has gotten to a tipping point where it's so offensive to God that he says, I'm just gonna to have to purify the whole thing. I'm a, you know, sometimes back in the old days when farmers, when the, when, the, when the hogs would get cholera, sometimes the only way they could cure cholera was to burn the barn. <laughs> sometimes you just gotta burn the barn. And, and what he was saying, it loosely translated here, is I'm gonna burn the barn. I mean, the only way to purge this wickedness from the earth is I'm gonna to have to completely consume it and just do a reset and a restart. And that's exactly what God purposed to do with the flood. But notice verse eight, and this is a beautiful thought, but Noah, but Noah. There is Noah standing in contradistinction to the flow of the world. Here are all these people who are walking away from God, not only in their actions, but in the intention of their heart. 
They're doing wicked and evil things to one another. They're abusing children. I mean, every evil, if you study that era, everything uh, 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 evil and unimaginable was taking place and it was publicly accepted. And so God finally said, I'm, I'm burning the barn. I am gonna absolutely deal with this. But you have this one man and he and his family had decided to do the right thing. And so the Bible says concerning Noah, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So before there was judgment that was sent into the world, the grace and the mercy of God was extended. And it was extended through this man by the name of Noah. And notice the phrasing of Genesis 6. He says, Noah found grace. Now what did we say grace is? Grace is God's hand reaching down toward us. Now hang on to that thought. Look at the second verse, Hebrews chapter 11, verse seven. By faith, Noah. What is faith? Faith is Noah's hand reaching up to God. So here is a man whose hand reached God's hand and he found mercy and he found grace. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, he prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now let me unpack this a little bit and explain this a little bit. I've, I've got a lot of stuff to cover in a short period. I'm gonna cover a marathon of truth and sprint time. How about that? So we're gonna roll. Uh, number one, here's the first thing I want you to see is what I'm calling Noah's faith. Noah's faith. I mean, it stands out beautifully. It stands out brightly in the darkness that was that world. You had that one little pinpoint of light that was shining brightly and that was Noah. That was Noah and his family by faith Noah. Now what's interesting about his faith is Noah was being called upon by God to build an ark. You see this down as you read through chapter six. When Noah found, finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, the first thing God said to Noah, he said, you're a righteous man and I want you to build something for me. I want you to build an ark. Now, now let me help you understand how powerful his faith was. Noah had never seen an ark. Noah did not know what an ark meant. He was being asked to build something he didn't, had, had never seen. He had been asked to build something that he didn't know why. As far as we know, it had never rained on the earth at that point. So he's preparing for something he had never seen. Can you imagine how Noah had to suspend his own uh, comprehension in order to embrace what God was calling him to do? Because when you read down through Genesis 6, God gives him the instructions. It's going to be built out of gopher wood. Here are the dimensions. Here's what it's going to look like. It's going to take you a long time in order to do that. And so what was amazing about it, Noah doesn't question God. He doesn't raise his hand, excuse me, uh, question here. What is an ark? <laughs> and why am I doing this again? What is a flood? And why in the world is that coming? He, he doesn't ask God any questions. He just undertakes what he has been asked to do. And can I tell you, it's the simplicity of his faith that I think moves the heart of God. I, I, don't, I, I think sometimes people try to discover God's will this way. They try to say, show me what you want me to do and then I'll decide if I'm gonna do it. The way you really move the heart of God is you move the heart of God this way saying, God, my mind is made up. Whatever you want me to do, whatever that looks like, I'm willing to do it. You see the difference? Whatever it is, 
Whatever you say, I'll, I'll do that, God. I am absolutely, I'm all in. I've pushed all of it in. I'm, I'm all in here. I, I'm going for you, whatever that is, whatever that looks like, whatever you tell me to do, that will I do. And so the beautiful thing about Noah that I just wanted you to know is God doesn't tell him that a flood is coming initially. He just tells him to build the ark. Once he tells him to build the ark, then he says, because there's a flood coming. And here's why. And the beautiful thing about that is no one ever questions God. He simply steps out by faith and he does the thing God has called him to do. And what's interesting about this, guys, is as Noah is building the ark, Noah is also talking to other people about what he's doing. We, we know uh, this because there's no way one man could have built that structure alone. When you really began to understand the dimensions of it, it was obvious to me that Noah had help. And I, I'll even go out on this uh, subjection limb far enough to say, I think he had to get people who really didn't believe in the project or even believe in, in Noah, but th they came alongside to help him anyway, right? Uh, and I know this because it took him 120 years to build it and he didn't have one convert outside of his own family that got on the ark with him. So that tells me a lot of people, a lot of people heard the warnings and they heard uh, the, the message and they knew the purpose of the ark and they even helped him in the project, but they didn't get on board at the end of the day. Uh, again, you go back to the uh, willful rejection of people to reject not only the warning from God, but to reject the warning that came from God through Noah. Remember, it says he condemned the world by which he condemned the world. You see that phrase in verse seven of chapter 11? Meaning that it was his message that was saying, God is going to bring judgment on the world, man. You need to help me. And when this thing's built, you need to get in the ark with me. But it was obvious a lot of people helped him that really didn't believe in God. They just kind of came alongside of him for the sake of the project. And, and it goes back to a principle I taught last weekend about how God deals with unrighteousness and how it, is, it begins when we willfully reject him. Remember I said the, the willful rejection of God can lead to judicial rejection by God. Meaning that a person can reject God so many times. I think I mentioned Genesis five, but I got it wrong. It's in Genesis six, verse three, where he says, my spirit will not always strive with man. I think I used that in one of the services last weekend. God was saying, I'm not always gonna be long suffering. I'm not always gonna be patient. There comes a time when I'll not, I will no longer extend opportunity or I'll no longer give man a chance. There comes a point where you cross a line with God where his spirit will not always strive with a person. John five, for example, Jesus said, did I give this to you last week? Okay, forgive me, I'm old. Where he said, they will not come to me that they might have life. And then when you get to John 7, he said, they cannot come to me that they might have life. But what's the principle there? Willful rejection leads to judicial rejection. There's another good verse that underscores this in 2 Timothy 4.4. Paul is talking about doctrine. And he's talking about people who, who turn from the truth and they're turned to fables. Uh, it's interesting when you read the phrasing, it says, it says it this way, and being turned, they will be turned. Being turned, they will be turned. In the first turning, it's willful. Being turned, I willfully turn, and now I will be turned, I'm judicially turned. So there is this line that you cross, and the people of Noah's day, 
illustrated by the millions that crossed that line where God had given them every opportunity through the sacrificial system to have a relationship with him and they rejected him to the fact that it's down to one family and one family on the earth alone who believes in God and they're obedient and Noah's faith shines so brightly because he believed and trusted God. Secondly, not only do you see something of Noah's faith, you see something of Noah's fear. Noah's fear. Notice what he said. He moved with fear and built a house or built the ark for the saving of his family. The fight, fight or flight mechanism is something everybody has. It's a God-given instinct. Self-preservation is, is a basic instinct that we all have. And I can tell you one of the things that motivated Moses is he was afraid of the flood. He wasn't sure what it was, but he didn't, know he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to get in on it. <laughs> He wasn't sure what was gonna happen in the world, but he wanted to be in the ark and not out of the ark. And that motivated him. And can I tell you, fear is a motivator. Advertisers use it all the time. Okay, quit smoking, be careful, you know, uh, abusing alcohol, don't do drugs, you know. Uh, I mean, whatever the topic is, they'll use fear as a motivation to get you to do something or not do something. Advertisers know fear is a motivator. It, it's true throughout the Bible. There are people who, are motivated, all right, let me give you this way. The Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. Some people change when they see the light. It's the goodness of God, Romans 2, 24. Uh, some people change when they feel the heat. <laughs> Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So on one hand, you can go, come to Jesus because you see the light, the goodness of God, on the other hand, you come to Jesus because you fear the enemy who can destroy soul and body in hell. It's motivation. I, I, I mean, there's people in this room whose story would be, I received Jesus as my savior because I was drawn to him. I knew that there had to be a better way for my life and so I trusted him one day. I, I knew that he loved me and I knew he loved my family and he was the missing piece in my heart and I gave my heart to Christ. The goodness of God led you to repentance. And there are people in this room and some watching online now who would say, my life was spinning out of control. I'd hit the bottom. One guy told me, I, I don't think I'd ever looked up had I not hit the bottom. And there's some people, honestly, they have to hit the bottom. And, and they, they respond when they feel the heat. It's the motivation. Uh, Jesus said it this way. He said, look, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. You're better to go into heaven with one and then to hell with two. He said, if your right arm offends you, cut it off. You better to go into heaven with one than into hell with two. Now here's what he wasn't saying. He's not some sovereign sadist that takes pleasure in our pain. That's not what's happening in that verse. What he is saying is this. If it requires or if it takes um, pain or if it takes some kind of a, uh, an event in our life that brings us to Christ, he is more just to allow that event or that pain than to allow us to go merrily on out into eternity without him. You see what I'm saying? Sometimes God will bring something devastating into our life to bring us to an awareness that we need God. It's not always the light, sometimes it's the heat. <laughs> but you're still free to choose. You can respond to the light, you can respond to the heat, you can say, okay, God, I can't do this on my own. I'm gonna trust you, all that I am is gonna trust all that you are. And so you make that decision. And Noah, the thing that motivated him was the fear. He had this fear. He knew, I've got an opportunity to get this ark and to get in, and if I don't, I will be uh, the, the object of God's judgment on this world. And I don't need part of that. 
And by the way, God's judgment is always just. Let me, let me chase this rabbit just a little bit to explain this. Um, God's judgment is um, individualized, meaning that every sin that we commit is not necessarily in categories. Uh, another way to put it is there aren't degrees of sin, little sins, medium-sized sins, big sins. Sin is sin, all sin is against God. It, it's not the degree of sin, it's the degree of judgment. How does God view sin? All sins away from God, but God deals with some things different than others. Some things he will deal with more severely because it's something that is more devastating and it harms other people, and so he may deal with that in a more severe way. I can give you a support text for that. It's the story in Luke chapter 12 where he talked about the servant, and one servant with both eyes open willingly did the thing his master told him not to do, and the judgment was much more severe than the one who just inadvertently did something and disobeyed his master. His judgment was, was less severe. You see the point? So I do think people who go out into eternity without God will experience the judgment of God based upon the lives they've lived here on the earth. There's some people who will be judged in eternity certainly much more harshly than others uh, because of the lives that they live on the earth. Because, here's why, God is just. He's just. A verse in Romans chapter two says, one day an entire world that rejected God will stand before him. And the verse says, Romans two, he said they stand without excuse, without excuse. You say, well, Bill, I'm, I'm chasing this rabbit a little further now if you're following me. Um, you say, well, Bill, um, uh, what about the person who lives in a part of the world that didn't hear the gospel as often as the person who lives in this part of the world? That's a great question. Will the judgment on them be as harsh if they go out into eternity without God as the judgment of someone here who hears the gospel all the time and just willfully rejects Jesus? I, I, I'd say no. I don't think the judgment on them would be as harsh. Not according to Luke 12. They didn't have the same opportunity. But here's what I'll say about that. They still are in the category of standing before God without excuse. Well, wouldn't the excuse be, I lived in a part of the world that I didn't hear as much gospel as I did the people in the buckle of the Bible belt? Well, here's the explanation I found for that. It helps me. John 1, 9, Jesus is the light that lights, listen, everyone who comes into the world. Now what that verse doesn't teach is that there's a spark of divinity within all of us. If you fan the flame, you kind of become a Christian by evolution, you just fan that little divinity. No, I don't believe that's kind of universalism. Uh, and I, I don't believe the Bible teaches that. A spark of divinity, in my estimation, he's the light that lights everyone who comes into the world. I think that is teaching the principle that there is an awareness of God that's in the heart of every person who comes into the world, an awareness of God. I can support that by challenging you to look at any people group anywhere in the world, any culture anywhere in the world, no matter how primitive, and they'll have some form of worship. Why, where did they get that? They got that because he is the light that lights everyone. Now they may have the wrong God, they have, but I'm saying there's a concept of God. There's, there's enough light in their heart and soul to know there is something out there that I need that I don't presently have. Pascal called it the God-shaped vacuum. And here's what I believe. I think if a person is true and faithful to that little light God has given them, God will give them increased light to the point that he'll wreck a plane and drop a missionary right on top of them. 
So the point is be true and faithful to the light God has given you. But if they turn their back on the light and turning, they will be turned. If they turn willful leads to judicial, then the judgment that they'll experience in eternity will be predicated upon opportunity they had and upon the life that they live because God is just. In fact, the, 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 the difference in eternity, by the way, the, the, the difference that determines whether we go to heaven or hell when we leave here is all based upon what we did with Jesus. It's not based on the works that we do. It's not based on the money that we give. It's not based on any of those things. Uh, Matthew 7, uh, 21, 22, 23, Jesus said in that final judgment, the great white throne, when the lost world is brought before him, here's what he will ultimately say, depart from me, you've worked deceit, and here's the line, I never knew you. He didn't say I knew you and you blew it and I kicked you out of the family. He, he didn't say that at all. He said, I never knew you. <laughs> you turned from the light, you walked in the darkness, you walked away from me, I didn't know you. And then when Thomas was curious about how you can get to heaven in John 14, Jesus made it clear. John 14, 6, Thomas, I am the way, not one of many. I am the truth. Not everybody's got a truth. Your truth, my truth, everybody got truth. All God's children's got truth. No, there's only one truth and the life. And then he said, no one comes to the Father. He brought it home, narrowed it in. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. That's why I would tell you this morning, there's not a Baptist way to heaven and a Catholic way to heaven and a Pentecostal way. There's only one way. That's a Jesus way. <laughs> it's your relationship, not your religion. And that's the determining factor. Man, when you look at the ark that Noah built, it had one door. One door. <laughs> the ark was representative of God. had one door. And so Moses moved with fear and he built the ark according to the specs that God gave him. So you have his faith, you have his fear. Did I give you his foresight? I need to, because I only got three minutes left with y'all. <laughs> His foresight, the Bible says that he prepared an ark for the saving of his family. He prepared. The word prepare, it's interesting. Pre means before, right? Pair, like a paring knife, is to cut or to carve. So you prepare means you get something ready before you need it. That's all the word means. So Noah knew judgment is coming. If you're in the ark, you'll be saved. So I need to get this thing built. And while I'm building it, I need to tell as many people as I can about the reality of God's judgment so you can get in the boat with me. And so he did that. He was faithful. He prepared the ark. And his motivation was here, it says, for the saving of his house. And man, when you get to Genesis chapter seven, you see, guys, the first invitation given in the Bible, Genesis 7, 1, God says, come thou and all your family into the ark. I love this, he didn't say go into the ark, he said come into the ark. Had he said go into the ark, it would have indicated that he's on the outside telling you to go somewhere he's not. He says come into the ark, meaning he was already in the ark and he was inviting them to join him. And the Bible says according to Genesis six, God shut the door. He sealed them into the ark. Remember I told you about the sealing of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians one, you're sealed into the day of redemption. They were sealed in the ark with the presence of God. And so they weren't saved by hanging on to the ark. They were saved by going into the ark. And by the way, this is free like the rest of it. They could fall in the ark, but they couldn't fall out of the ark. You could fall in the ark. Just because you're a Christian doesn't I mean you aren't going to sin. In fact, if you want to blow your hat in the creek, go to Genesis 9 and look what he did when he got out of the ark. You talk about messing up. Our Noah boy messed up big time in Genesis 9, but here he is in Hebrews 11. 
He didn't lose his salvation. He was sealed. He's, in, he's, he's included in the hall of faith. So I'm suggesting to your heart that the invitation is to come. God has prepared a way. Jesus said concerning heaven, I go to prepare, John 14 again, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, and, and by the way, the word place in the Greek, place is um, topos. We get the word topography from that word. Heaven is a place. Heaven, people in heaven aren't like ghosts floating around like Casper. People are, re they're real people. <laughs> heaven is a topos. It is a place as real as Fort Worth, Texas. I go to prepare, a prepare, prepare a place, Jesus said. So you see his faith, you see his fear, you see his foresight. Here's the last one. You see his fortune, his fortune. Look at what he said. He became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. He received the righteousness of God. He received not only uh, heaven on earth, but he received heaven with God when he left this earth. He received all of the blessings and the favor of God. He received it because of his faith. You know one of the beautiful things about understanding God's judgment? Because Jesus warned in Matthew 22, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And Jesus warned that there will be a lot of uh, correlation to the things we see in our world before Jesus returns to what Noah saw in his world, the rejection of God, um, the wickedness that's imposed upon children, all of the things that we're seeing in our world. He said, these are very similar to how it was in the days of Noah. And he said, these were happening prior to the judgment of God, universally falling upon the earth. And we understand prophetically what that looks like, that one day God will, will in fact judge this world. He said he would. But here's what's interesting about it. When Jesus died on the cross and all the sins of the world were rolled upon him, the fires, listen, the fires of God's wrath fell upon Jesus at the cross and, and literally he paid for the, our sins there at the cross. And here's the thing about fire. The fire will not fall where the fire has already fell. Let me explain that. Years ago, we were going up toward, headed up to Colorado. We were gonna do some hunting up there. And there was a big prairie fire out toward uh, Wichita Falls, up toward uh, uh, Vernon, up that way. If you've driven up that way on 287, you're familiar with that path. And it was so severe that smoke, they closed the road. Troopers had the freeway closed down. And so they had to route us miles and miles around the fire. And what a lot of those firefighters would do in order to get ahead of the fire is they would go ahead of the fire and create what they called fire breaks. Many of you are familiar with this, probably much more educated on it even than I. And that means they would get in front of the fire and they'd burn off big strips of land because the fire would only come so far as to where that burnt area was and it would stop, it was a fire break because the fire would not return where the fire had already been. At the cross, when Jesus Christ paid for our sins, the fires of God's judgment fell at the cross. And when you and I go to the cross and we embrace the cross, the fires of God's judgment will not fall again where the fire of his judgment once fell. You're safe from the fire of God's judgment. You're safe from the wrath of God. You'll never, you don't even have to worry about it. You don't even have to think about that. So you preoccupied, are you worried about going to heaven or hell? Nope, I'm as sure for heaven as though I'm already there. I, I'm, my feet are on the ground, but I'm telling you, my head and heart are as certain for heaven as though I'm already there. Why? Because as a boy, I didn't understand a lot, but I understood he loved me and I understood he died for me. And as a young boy, I went to the cross metaphorically <laughs> and I trusted him 
And I embraced his payment knowing the fire of God would never again fall where the fire once fell. That's why if you don't know Jesus, I highly recommend him. <laughs> I encourage you to trust him. You have the opportunity. Now is the accepted time. Today, he said, is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of looking back in your word and trying to comprehend a massive story and find from it principles that still are applying and are relevant to us today. And I pray the takeaway from the message would just be simply this. Everyone hearing this message, we do not have to fear the judgment of God if we've embraced the salvation of Jesus there at the cross. That Lord, we belong to you and you don't judge your kids. So I pray this morning for my friends who may never have trusted you, regardless of their background, regardless of what they've done, regardless, Lord, of their religious affiliation, they'll set that aside and just simply say, I want to invite Christ into my heart in this room, in this moment, at this time. I pray they'd pray just a simple prayer in their own heart, right along with me right now, and just say, Lord Jesus, with everything I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart, forgive my sin. Give me the peace and the assurance that I belong to you. And God, I'll give you thanks. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.